I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at The Outnet. I work in an office that's staffed almost entirely by women, and a lot of them happen to have enviable taste. Recently, I saw another Goop staffer wearing this incredible jumpsuit that I tried on last season and loved, but for whatever reason, didn't end up pulling the trigger on, and I've regretted it ever since. This is where The Outnet comes in. Their virtual shelves are stocked with gems from previous seasons from over 350 designer brands, so I can find that special piece that got away. I also don't have to worry about breaking the bank because pieces on the Outnet are up to 75% off retail prices. Check out their collection at theoutnet.com and just enter Goop at checkout to get an extra 20% off your next purchase. To see the fine print, head to www.theoutnet.com backslash goop. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today, Elise is talking to Janine Roth. Janine is the author of several books, including Women, Food, and God, and This Messy, Magnificent Life. For decades, Janine has explored our relationship to food, our bodies, weight, the way we eat, and our inner emotional lives. Elise asked Janine to break all of this down. They talked about why relationships to food can be so fraught and how we might help to heal them. I think ultimately there isn't anything you can actually get that is going to provide the kind of satisfaction and contentment that you know you want. That is actually a matter of turning around and looking inside. Okay, let's cut to their chat. So Janine, your work is primarily around compulsive eating, women's attachments to food, and sort of the emotional meat that lives there. So why, and one of the things you've talked about a lot is that the concept of dieting is a fallacy. Can you sort of explain what that means? Well, first of all, let me talk about why I'm so fascinated with food. I'm fascinated with food because it is a fabulous microcosm of what people think and believe and how they express themselves in the rest of their lives. So it's a fabulous gateway to your beliefs about nourishment, deprivation, joy, if you're allowed to have pleasure or delight, enough. I just worked with somebody at this event that I was at who said, there are so many carrots on my plate and um, I haven't finished these, but I'm already worried that I'm not going to be able to get more. And, or I'm noticing I'm rushing through this meal and it's making me realize that I rush through my time with my kids. I rush through my time with my life. I never stop and just really, truly take in the delight of this moment. So I love having a doorway like that where people get to suddenly wake up and say, oh my God, this is how I'm doing the entire rest of my life. And because I eat three times a day or more or less, whatever, once a day, I get to see what I really 
believe about being alive. So I love that. Dieting doesn't really work so well because it's based on shame and deprivation and force and punishment. And people don't really learn well when they're depriving, forcing, shaming, and punishing themselves and afraid of themselves. So uh, I don't think that's a particularly effective way to learn about food or for that matter about anything Mm -hmm. else. I love that quote. I think it was in Women, Food, and God. Um, where you write, losing weight on any program in which you tell yourself that left to your real impulses, you would devour the universe is like building a skyscraper on sand. Yeah. Such an amazing line. But it's true. It's like so typical of women to want, it's like, tell me what to do. It's like just that constant giving away of power. Like I can't trust myself. Yes. Tell me what to do. Yes. And I write about this in this messy, magnificent life too, because I kind of got it as I was writing this book that dieting is a developmental stage, that it's a, and I'll explain that. It's a, it's a time where what you just said, Elise, where you, feel or say to someone else a program, a big daddy, so to speak, tell me what to do because I can't be my own authority here. So if you tell me what to do, then I'll be safe. But it doesn't give women a chance to own their own power or authority, to own their own physical space. By that, I mean their bodies and to figure out what they actually want, what what they eat that can make them thrive versus what they eat that depresses or spaces them out, um, that zaps their energy. And sometimes, of course, with food, you don't know that till a day or two later. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we really don't talk, we talk about sort of food styles, like that, but not extensively, like whether it's a paleo or a keto, or we talk about, um, just general diets, but we really don't believe in dieting and goop either because, like the calories, in, particularly with women, like we're so complex. We have so many, there are so many yes. other factors at play, like that seems useless. And diets as, as a rule fail for the most part, right? Yes. Yeah, they do. And what I have been asking women much more these days is you want to eat like this, whether it's paleo or it's a Mediterranean uh, kind of diet, which is high fat versus high complex carbohydrates mm-hmm. and low fat. Um, t- I usually will say to somebody, tell me why you want to eat like this. How do you want to feel mm-hmm. when you eat like this? What do you want to feel in your body? What do you want to feel in your energy? Tell me what you really want, what you're moving towards instead of away from, Mm -hmm. because I find that that's much easier for people to focus on. I want to feel alive. I want to feel this kind of buoyancy, Mm -hmm. clarity, brightness in my life. And I'm using food or having what I eat support me in that. Mm -hmm. And so given the choice, once I'm aware of I want to feel clear, bright, buoyant, alive, and I'm looking at something that's going to make me feel depressed and spacey and like I've just swallowed a bowling ball on my stomach, then I'm going to choose what makes me feel good. Yeah. And that seems obviously like a really centered way to eat. I know you host retreats and and for most of your life have worked with people who have a 
dysfunctional relationship with food, a compulsive or addictive relationship with food. So where where does that come from? And I guess we're all on that spectrum, but for the the people who end up in the room with you, what's what's at play? They're suffering about their relationship with food. They're not necessarily overweight or over their natural weight. In fact, at my last retreat, I'd say maybe, maybe a tenth of the people were overweight. It was more that they had a conflicted relationship with food and their bodies, Mm -hmm. really about their body size. But of course, if you have a conflicted relationship with your body size and you, you don't like your body and you judge your body and or you're ashamed of it or you loathe it, then most likely you're going to have a conflicted relationship with what goes into it. Mm -hmm. So those are the people that I see. And that's the so-called addiction that is the one that they're focused on. You know, I always say everybody's got to stick with food. Everybody's. Because we all eat. And we all learn these very odd messages about food. Uh, We were unhappy and our mothers gave us cookies. We were sad and we got ice cream. We did well and we got a treat. So food somehow got associated with, uh, I deserve this. I did well in this area of my life or it's been happy and this area of my life has nothing to do with food at all. So I'll just eat. And so we all have that with food. The people that I work with uh, have more of that. And food is the way that they get to work on all the other parts of our parts of their lives. And of course it was for me uh, when uh, that was the way that I manifested or expressed the self-loathing that I had, the feeling that I was never good enough, had to keep trying harder and harder and harder and harder no matter what I did. The bar got raised and it all came out through my relationship with food and the size of my body. Of course, after I resolved that, then it came out in a lot of other ways too. <laughs> yeah. So you just said it all came out. and So, so how conscious – you know, for the women you work with, how conscious are they of sort of what's driving the behavior or is it really they're not conscious? Like, are you bringing the awareness and that's enough to sort of break the cycle or are you giving them the tools once because they are aware to like master it? All of the above. Okay. So, you know, also people come to my retreats who, who have issues with money or have issues in relationships. So it's not necessarily about food, because, although it is about food with a lot of them because it's the same us that is in relationship or that is dieting and binging, budgeting and splurging, withdrawing, being reactive in a relationship. It's still our beliefs about who we are. It's mostly the beliefs about who we are and the way we relate to our minds. You know, it occurred to me recently, actually, when I started this Messy Magnificent Life, I thought because I had really resolved my issues with food that, or I believed that for a long time, I was sort of home free because I kept thinking in all those years, well, if only I could get this handled, then everything else would be okay. The famous, if only I had, then I would be happy. And for the longest time, I believed if only I had a body that was at its natural weight, then everything would be fine because it seemed like all the conflicts I had were about the size of my body and about what I called in those days willpower. But then when I took those away, 
then it, it, it wasn't really so much about relationship, although it was a little bit about money. Um, I got to see, wow, it's just about living in my mind, which is a hell realm some of the time. So it's really about me being aware of the kinds of things I'm saying to myself on an ongoing basis. What it's like to wake up as me, what it's like for the women who come and see me to to live in their own skin. So how are they with their kids? How are they with their spouses? What's going on? What are they telling themselves about who they are that's making their lives so difficult, so painful? Mm-hmm. That if only... Um moment I think is so, has so much, um, lords. I mean, it just hangs over so many. And I, I do see it manifest with some friends as weight where it's that, well, if I, if I lose a weight, then I'm, then I get that. That's the reason I don't have love or whatever it is. And it's, yeah. like, it's not true, no. but I guess by pushing that Sisyphean boulder up the hill, knowing you'll never reach your goal, which seems to be the intent because there's so much self-sabotage, then you don't have to, I guess, unpack why it is that you're terrified of being loved. Yes. It, th- what happens if when people reach their goal, and this happens with money, uh, with weight, um, sometimes with relationships, depending on what the internal dynamics are, if we're uh, trying to get value by chasing someone who doesn't love us. And so we just keep going after that. So it's the internal dialogue. This happens all the time in situations like that. So it's the raising the bar phenomenon that I'd like to also talk about, that no matter where someone gets they raise the bar. So I've gotten the, I've gotten what I want and suddenly I want more. I see this with women in weight. I see it, well, you know, I, I know I said I just wanted to lose 10 pounds, but you know, be better if I lost 15 pounds or 20 pounds. I hear this about with women and money all the time too. And I hear this from financial advisors that I've interviewed because we lost all of our money in the Madoff debacle. And I realized, oh, I am really unconscious about my relationship with money. I better find out something about this. And so I interviewed a lot of financial advisors. And they told me the same thing. No matter how much someone said they wanted for retirement when they got there, the bar was raised. So there's this sense of being in the waiting room of our lives all the time. We never actually take in where we are. We never let ourselves have what we have. This is what I think is someone at the source of compulsive eating. I'll, I'll be working with somebody in an eating meditation and they'll be chewing something and their fork will be down and the next forkful will be raised before this is gone. And I'll say, how about letting yourself have it right now? Let yourself have what you have. Take it in, have the enjoyment. Most of us don't stop. We just keep rushing through our lives as if there's a big get at the end. And we finally get that, whether it's 10 pounds or 20 pounds or an X amount of money in our retirement savings or the relationship that we think we want. When we get there, then we've gotten so used to rushing and waiting for the next get that we don't even realize we're there. This can't possibly it because I've been 
my mind is trained, you know, all of the neuroscience right now about the brain circuitry. And also, I think ultimately there isn't anything you can actually get that is going to provide the kind of satisfaction and contentment that you know you want. That is actually a matter of turning around and looking inside. So it's ultimately disappointing, which I think is the reason why so many people raise the bar. No, that makes so much sense. I mean, I I wouldn't say it's at, at all a compulsive shopping habit, but I definitely, particularly when I traveled, it was like this just like, I'm just going to go hog wild. And then I was in India and this Vedanta scholar was talking about attachment and he said, the item gives you the most happiness the moments before you actually acquire it. And I was like, oh my God, that's right. Like then it's just another necklace in my jewelry box that doesn't really have any meaning except that it reminds me of India. So that broke that cycle for me, that acquisitive cycle. Yes. Well, Um, how lucky for you. I know. Now, really? Yeah. Now I tend to I, – I buy things but really out of like need and less and, – and then I feel better because they're not taunting me and I'm not like, why did I think I needed a, that diamond slice necklace? I already can't wear all the jewelry I own. Yes, right. So with food, do you think that – like you, I think everyone has their own thing. I definitely relate when you talk about rushing or inhaling food. Sometimes I'm like – it's it's just, I don't, I I guess I'm not enjoying, I don't know what that means. Tell me what that means. You mean to enjoy food? Or just like what? To I, stop? Yeah. Right. To stop <laughs> is what it actually means. <laughs> actually means stopping and realizing. And, and, and so this is true, just to relate back to your experience with shopping, mm-hmm. most people would rather want than have. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because in the wanting, there's the sense that there's an end point that having will give it to me. But because it doesn't give it to me, then I go back to wanting because it's disappointing when I have the thing. It's just another necklace in your jewelry box, as you said. And so in order to break that cycle if you don't have a Vedanta teacher or scholar, Mm -hmm. if you're not lucky enough. does. As all of us are wont to have, um, then anybody can do that by stopping. So it requires stopping. I think first is the awareness. It's the awareness that we are rushing through our lives, that we're never quite present. Mm-hmm. We're never where we are. We're always on to the next thing. And I'm, I'm this bite and I'm talking, I'm thinking about the next bite. I'm writing this email and I'm thinking about the five other emails I need to write. I'm sitting here with my kids, but really I need to get on with my day here. Or I'm waiting to have the next job or I'm waiting to go on a trip. I'm not on the trip yet, but my vacation is coming. So I'll just get this moment out of the way so I can get to the next better moment. Mm-hmm. And that's the snapshot of how we are. I just need to get this out of the way, this mm-hmm. thing called my life in the present moment, so I can really have the life that I want. Mm-hmm. That will be better. And then it isn't. And and so we keep rushing. And is are we rushing because we're uncomfortable with discomfort? 
Is that the, the impetus? Like, what's the driving force there? I think we're rushing, first of all, because we don't have models. Of, we're living in a Russian culture. Mm-hmm. We're living in a gotta get more, more is better, doing more is better, achieving is fabulous. No matter what you get, there's that feeling, no matter what you got, there's more to get. Mm-hmm. And it's this endless wheel of running. And I don't think we realize that. I don't, I don't think we get it that, that, that no matter what we have, we feel like more is better. And so we're never with what we have. So stopping. So let's just take it all the way back to a meal. Mm -hmm. Okay. To the simplest way that somebody can see what stopping is like. So I have a set of eating guidelines that I really recommend for people. And so one of them is eat sitting down in a calm environment. This does not include the car. Another one is eat without distractions. That means no Facebook, no Instagram, no email, no Twitter, no Snapchat, Snapchat, no nothing. You're just, you're focusing on what you're focusing on and you're taking in what you've got. And Hardly anybody does that. There's so much resistance, but I have so much to do. And in the meantime, you're doing all that and you're not with any one of those things. You're always on the way to doing something better. So it's just stopping. Yeah. And so when you look at, at food addiction, or, or and I get that you can apply this to almost any addiction, is that drive essential to that or is it... Um, are, what are the other factors that right. are driving those sorts of addictions? So that's an essential essential drive, I think, to being human, what we're just talking about. Not actually being present. It's what all the meditation teachers talk about. It's what the Buddha talked about 2,500 years ago. It's what every spiritual teacher has ever talked about. You know, Zen mind, beginner's mind, just be where you are. That's just the act of being present or presence and what you pay attention to. Another factor in the addictive cycle is we just want to change the channel in our minds. Mm -hmm. We just want to go somewhere else. We just don't. We use whatever it is, the internet, food, relationships, uh, climbing the ladder, whatever it is, as a way to avoid the essential discomfort that we feel. And it could be um, on a micro level, and I don't mean to say sadness or rejection or loneliness or the feeling of abandonment is micro. It's big in the moment, but mm-hmm. it could be whatever your your present life situation is presenting you with, but it also could be something much bigger than that, which is whoa, uh, you know, a friend of mine just died. They were, he was 24. He died of a brain tumor. He was going for everything and now he's dead. And uh, it could be, you know, wow, I think uh, everything does end somehow and I'm going to die too. And oh no. And so that's a much more essential discomfort of just seeing that, um, Everything we love comes to an end. All forms come to an end. And that is such a bummer. I, I mean, it is such a bummer. And and so there's that there's that face to face with this 
I mean, even on, on a level like my vacation is going to end mm-hmm. and uh, my youth is going to end sometime and uh, this experience is going to end. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I went to the prom and I had this fabulous sort of dress, pink tulle and these little rhinestones and my hair was up in some kind of thing, very thing, and I had little sparkles in it. I couldn't wait for the prom and then it was over. It was, What? Mm-hmm. I spent months anticipating it, and now it's over. That was a bummer. It's true. I know, just even having that conversation with you <laughs> spiked all sorts of anxiety in my chest. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so when you realize that, then you get to enjoy the things of the moment fully because you're not expecting them to last forever. Mm-hmm. But then it's <gasps> a hot shower. Isn't that fabulous that there's hot water? You know, I will often say to my students, it's another day above ground on planet Earth. Yay! You made it here today. Have you noticed that? Are you appreciating that? The the gorgeousness of ordinary moments, Mm -hmm. like just sitting here with you. Mm -hmm. The remarkable nature of the unremarkable is fabulous because then you don't get to have forever but when you deeply appreciate and this takes paying attention it's not anything that you have a gratitude journal and you write at the end of the day okay I'm grateful for my kids and I'm grateful for the sky and I'm you know whatever the 10 things you're grateful for that day that's like check check check, but you're not actually taking it in Mm -hmm. where it's affecting you, where you realize, wow, I get to have this. And when you're actually present in the moment, you don't have forever, but you have eternity. Because when you're present in the moment, there's a timeless quality to it. So when you use that sort of thinking, which which definitely makes sense to me in your retreats, but you're talking to people who want to Oh, let's say, I guess not not everyone, but for the people who want to just eat relentlessly. Like <laughs> let's my get back respo- to eating, Janine. I mean, all this stuff about presents sounds great, but hey, what about eating? Well, <laughs> my response to that, if that's the space that I'm in, is, God, if I'm going to die, then I'm going to eat this whole cake. Like, Right. And then, so, okay, so here's the thing then. <laughs> if you're going to die... Because I will often say to people, so if you only had a week left, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And at first it was, oh, I'm going to eat all the ice cream I can possibly eat. I am just going to go for it completely. But then you end up spending the week sick, burping, and farting. Right. And who wants to do that? So then you spend these precious moments that you have feeling sick to your stomach and spaced out and depressed. And that's what I was talking about before. What do you want to feel good for? Mm -hmm. Even if you had six months or a year or 10 years or 20 or 40 years, I mean, if you knew you had 40 years left, how do you want to feel during that time? And so it's proactively choosing that. And the food you eat leads to how you feel. Mm -hmm. And, you, you you know, I used to not focus on what people ate at all. I mostly focused on how they ate, not what they ate. 
And then I started realizing they were hugely affected by what they ate. And it was really hard to pay attention to how they ate. If the meal before they were paying attention to how they ate, they ate foods that made them feel spacey and depressed. Or as a friend of mine says, junky food leads to junky thoughts, leads to junky food. So now we're in a cycle. And yeah, so it's all connected. You know, it's not just, okay, well, you know, I'm only going to live for a day longer or a week longer, so just give me that ice cream and give me that pizza. And pizza and ice cream do happen to be my two favorite foods. We'll get right back to Janine, but first, Elise is going to tell us about one of our partners. I really don't like the feeling of being rushed to make a decision. Now or never mentalities usually don't work for me. I'm more of a sleep on it and let's see how things look in the morning kind of person. And this is more like what shopping on the outnet feels like. You can find pieces you saw and love from previous seasons, only this time at a fraction of the original price tag. I've never been super big on impulse buys, but on the outnet, you feel like you've had a good minute to weigh your purchases. And they stock what seems like every designer brand on the planet, or at least 350 of the best. So you're likely to find your favorite Oscar de la Renta print or Jimmy Choo heels from a season or two ago. And this time, they'll be up to 75% off. But what keeps people coming back to the outnet site is that you're rarely ever browsing the same thing. The Outnet drops new arrivals five days a week, Monday through Friday, which means no matter the time of year, you're almost always going to spot something worth your while. Get an extra 20% off your next purchase at theoutnet.com by using code GOOP at checkout. And for their terms and conditions, just head to www.theoutnet.com backslash GOOP. Back to Janine and Elise. So how would you like people to eat? <laughs> I'm just, like in terms of even just the mindfulness component. So it it's more about how I think they would feel most alive in their lives, not just eat, because it's a it's all of a piece. And and though I have focused on eating a lot, I'm sort of broadening the channel here now to focus on how you live because how you eat is how you live. Mm-hmm. Or as a Zen teacher said, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm. So I'm really focusing on how do you live your life when you wake up in the morning? What are the thoughts you have? What tortures you? I'm tortured by my mind. And so it takes a lot of mind management of me just being in relationship to my mind, noticing my mind. One of the touchstones in the book is be aware of your thoughts. Just because you have them doesn't mean they're true. Just because you have an opinion about something doesn't mean that opinion is true. And so question your thoughts. Mm -hmm. That is so radical for people to do. Radical. Be in your body. Locate. That doesn't take long. Mm -hmm. You know, feel your feet on the floor, your butt in the chair, wiggle your hands. Be aware that you didn't get transported from A to B in a beam-me-up Scotty kind of way. You actually walked. Can you remember getting from A to B? Most of us can't. Mm -mm. We got somewhere and it's like, how did I get here? I feel like I black out when I'm driving. (laughs) Because you're thinking about so many other things. Other than feeling your hands on the wheel, your foot on the gas, noticing what it is to be driving. Same thing happens to me. It takes a lot of 
con- I wouldn't say concentration. I would say intention. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where you can hear all these good things to do, but it's the actual application of them. A lot of times I'll say to my students and myself, because everything I say to my students, I say to myself, it's not so much what I practice or where I put my attention. It's that I do something every day. Because you can get a whole list of insights. I mean, we're, we're just filled with insights. Mm-hmm. But then what do you do with them? Insights do not lead to change. They don't. Sometimes you can have a Satori and you suddenly see the world in a completely different way. But then it's about doing something every day. So one of the things I recommend that people do besides questioning their thoughts, besides locating themselves in their body which means taking a couple of conscious breaths from your belly all the way up and back again to your belly, three of those breaths, you know, three times a day. That will make you feel more present. Or you could do three of those while you're driving, Elise, and you would be surprised what would happen. You'd actually notice where you were. So it's notice where you are, question your thoughts, um disengage from what I call the GPS from the twilight zone or the crazy ant in the attic, that voice of shame and blame that we've all, we all have that since we've been four years old. Disengage from that. That voice is not your friend. Tell that voice to go out on the lawn and get drunk on margaritas and leave you alone. But in order to do that, you have to be aware you're being run by that voice. That's a really important part. And then the last part, which is what I was talking about before, is to appreciate, to ask yourself daily. And I learned this when I spent a month with Thich Nhat Hanh in, uh, at his retreat center. Um, ask yourself what's not wrong. Oh, right. I love that moment in the book. Yes. Right. He asked the group, I mean, it was raining and damp and I didn't have the right clothes and I felt like I was trapped in a clammy Buddhist hellhole, really. And then one day he said to the group, and this is just my mind, looking at experiences and saying, get me out of here, which is what we do a lot. Mm-hmm. We just say, over there is better. I don't want to be here. It's raining. The weather's miserable. I want to be where it's hot and sunny. And of course, that's our preference, for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. Um, he asked the group, how many of you have a toothache right now? And maybe one or two people raise their hands. And then how many of you don't? Of course, the rest of the room of 100 people raise their hands. And how many of you are appreciating the fact that you do not have a toothache now? Mm. Nobody. And that's when I realized that I'm always looking at what's wrong Mm -hmm. instead of what's not wrong. Mm -hmm. And the mind or the brain developed like that. I mean, we had to make sure that we didn't get attacked by lions and woolly mammoths and all of that. And so we had to be on vigilant behavior, but not anymore, Mm -hmm. not like that. And yet we still have that same brain. And so it really takes practice. Sometimes in a group, even with people I've just met, not at retreats, I'll have them ask each other, tell me what's not wrong right now. And the energy shifts from, you know, here's what's wrong to this lightness and this luminosity because they've spent two minutes talking about what's not wrong. And they had not been paying attention to that at all. 
I love that. I also love in this book when you're talking to the woman who has a, a problematic relationship with her stepmother and essentially you arrive at this point where you're like, it's, she gets there, I think, through your coaching, but that she understands that it's not her stepmother that's the problem. It's her relationship to the stepmother. Right. And her expectations, I guess, of what she wants her to be. being yes. Her expectations. That's the, right. And that's, that's so key to everything. Just like taking a moment, whether it's a coworker, a friend, a partner, a husband, a wife, um, and recognizing your ownership, like how much you own that relationship. Yes. Right. Right. That's, that's the thing. It's not the person. No. The relationship. Well, because that person, and I'm not, I think I also wrote about my own stepmother in here and how the difference between what I wanted her to be like when my dad was dying mm. and what she was like was an entire world. And the stories that I made up about her because she wasn't who I wanted her to be and she wasn't acting in a way that I wanted her to act in that space between who she was and what I wanted for her to be. And of course, we can go around wanting a lot of people to be a lot of things that they're not most of the time is suffering because I was working against what was true. She did not feed my father his medicine. She did not uh, pick up the rugs in their house, even though he had Parkinson's disease. She did not um, take him to chemotherapy. She And I just thought, what kind of person does that? And it was, okay, well, she does that. And the more I wanted her to be the kind of person who wasn't the kind of person she was, the more I suffered. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't so much her that was causing my suffering, it was me wanting her to be different mm -hmm. than she was that was causing my suffering. And once I realized that, wow, I'm telling you, I felt like somebody let me out of prison. In fact, that's how I feel most of the time when I realize I'm telling myself these stories about how I want something to be that it's not. And I think that's the situation is what's causing me suffering. Mm -hmm. Like my stepmother is caught. My friend is My husband is causing me suffering. My weight, whatever it is. Yes, right. But it's actually the story I'm laying on it. It's what I'm telling myself about it. And when I see that, th then somehow I feel like I've been let out of prison because then I have an active choice about what to do. Mm -hmm. Like with my stepmother, it's what's my role here? What do I want to do? And then I get to step, I get to be objective mm -hmm. instead of complain, complain, mm -hmm. complain. The, I took on a, a non-complaining practice. It was radical, really radical because I didn't realize that most of my conversations with friends and, and really I see this with my students and I see this with my friends, most of what passes at conversation is complaining. It's true, and talking about other people. And talking about other people. And we're talking about other people. Why? Because they're not the way we think they should be. Mm -hmm. And we think we're right. And so not only do we get more mired in negativity, the more we complain, because it's just digging digging those neural circuits and deeper and deeper, oh, what a lousy world, what, I mean, and let's not even talk about politics, mm -hmm. because that's a whole other thing. And people feel like, okay, but I need to complain about it. Sometimes there's righteous complaining. And still what happens is that you dig yourself 
deeper into negativity, you don't really change anything. And then you feel Mm self-righteous. That's the other payoff, is that if I'm talking about somebody else, and because they're not being who I want them to be, then somehow it puffs me up. You know, I get to be the virtuous one here. Mm-hmm. Look at what they did. Like, you know. Look There's at w- somehow value in being right. Yes. Like, right. Right. There's no final award ceremony. No. <laughs> you don't get a gold star <laughs> at the end. Right. You don't. And it was shocking to me that that was true. It's like, where where's the gold star? And, you know, how could they? And who does that? What kind of person does that? You hear that all the time. Or... Seriously? They did that? And so you get to bond with somebody else, merge in negativity, and and feel, you know, oh, I'm not that kind of person. Um, and meanwhile, nothing changes. God, that must open up a whole new type of conversation. Not complaining. I'm telling you. Uh, you know, I did write about how my husband, after the first week or two, thought I had the flu. He thought something really was wrong. Because you had nothing to say? Because I would start my opening the conversation with a complaint. Can you believe? And then I'd stop myself. And then I'd be quiet. And I'd have to just be quiet because I didn't know what to say if I didn't complain. And I have friends who I've talked to about this and they don't know what to say. And they don't know what they're going to talk to their partners about or their friends about. In fact, I had a couple say that to me the other day. If we stop complaining to each other, they have two small kids, really work hard at their jobs and, you know, just trying to do so many things at once. And they both said to me, just stop them in their tracks. I don't know what we talk about. Yeah. My husband is like profoundly unjudgmental. It's like, it's such a talent. And being with him, I, that was, that was the thought, you know, you leave a dinner party and start gossip and he just missed everything. And so it was a great (laughs) natural training to stop because he wouldn't participate or he could, he couldn't even participate. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to him for that. Yes. But I think too, when we judge, like the, the, the judgment, that we bring to everyone else is really probably mirroring the judgment that we bring on ourselves. Yes, it's easier to judge somebody else, but more it's actually watching the mind and Mm -hmm. how comfortable, you know, it's all about what I said before. What are you paying attention to now? Mm. What's your relationship with What's happening right now? Oh, I see. I'm complaining. I leave a party. I feel the same way about my husband. It's like, what? You didn't notice that? Yeah. Did you not see how uncomfortable she was or that? And he didn't because he doesn't care He's about that. He's not focused He's on it. No. Right. And so it just lifts off the complaining part because gossiping and dishing, so to speak, mm-hmm. about somebody else is another form of complaining. Mm-hmm. So then it does leave so much free space. What do you do with that free space? Well, then you actually notice just the simple things like what's there in that moment. You've left the party. You're sitting in the car. You're together with your husband. Are you reconstructing what happened in the past? Or are you actually right there right now with your husband?
Thanks for joining us today. You can learn more about Janine at JanineRoth.com and pick up a copy of her latest book, This Messy, Magnificent Life. Before we wrap, let's do a quick AMA. Tara asks if there are any New Year's resolutions that I've had in the past that I look back now and laugh at or any that were meaningful and stuck. Well, I think it was maybe two years ago, I decided that if people mispronounced my first name, which is pronounced Gwyneth, and if they called me Gwyneth, that I was going to say, hey, my name is actually pronounced Gwyneth. My mom always used to say, it's Gwyn, like pin. It wasn't a great New Year's resolution, let's be honest. And, you know, a lot of people still get it wrong and call me Gwyneth. But that's always how I know that someone doesn't really know me well if they call me Gwyneth instead of Gwyneth. And it's probably why everyone at Goop just calls me GP. That's it for this episode of the Goop Podcast. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.